We are starting a new series today on the book of Philippians, and I love, I love beginnings. I love the newness of it. So if you have a Bible, open up your book to, um, open it up to Philippians. It's towards the back. Um, so the plan is to go through Philippians um, this month, and then next month, and we'll wrap up um, on the last weekend, weekend in July, at which point, for those of you that are new to our church, and there are a lot of you that are new to our church over the past year, um, in the month of August, we break um, from the main building. We still meet together as a community, but we meet together outside in the park for the entire month of August. Um, and it's just a time for Sabbath rest where we sort of shut down the church machine and all of our volunteers take a break and everyone just takes a break. And we all go sit underneath trees and watch each other's kids play on the playground um, and just hang out. And um, there will be opportunity for fellowship and prayer and other stuff. But it's just a chance to take a breath and uh, restart before the year begins. So I want to just, we're going to reiterate that a few times, but um, just don't get lost. When the month of August comes, we're over there. We're not in here. Um, and it's just a great chance to, to hang out with people that you don't usually hang out with because you're blocked by pews. The month of August, I meet like 10 new people. I'm like, oh, are you new? And they're like, no, we've been going here for two years. I'm like, oh, cool. Um, but it's because I don't leave my pew. I just kind of am a creature of habit. So um, anyway, we're going to jump into the sermon today, Book of Philippians. So I wanted to just show you. Um, if you open up to your Bible, um, also, so many of you are new, not just to this church, but to church in general. And if you just tried to grab a Bible and open up to Philippians, which is a weird name for a book, um, you'll notice that it's like this far. It's like almost the end of the Bible. And if you have no context for what's going on, like why are we reading the end of a book that is supposed to be the Christian book? I don't know what's going on. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that there's like a gigantic thing that's been happening for like over a thousand pages before we even start reading this book. Um, and maybe that's not news to you, uh, but for those of you that are wading in to the Bible, even if it's just for the first couple of years, um, there's some things we should talk about before we just start reading the end of the story. Um, so let's do a recap, shall we? Can we go back to school for a minute and do a recap? The Bible begins with the story of creation, where God makes a good world. And to make um, a complex and beautiful story just like really short because we don't have time, the point is that God forms this from uninhabitable matter, um, something habitable, something beautiful. And he pours out his breath and his blessing and he sets it all up for life. God loves life and he sets it up to begin. This is how the Bible opens up, creation. And he wants to share um, his authority to rule over all of that with one of the particular life forms that he makes called humanity. There is one problem, though. Um, he gives humanity the dignity of being their own agents um, of choice and will and desire. They're free to partner with him, but they're also free to question that partnership um, and, and reject it, which they do. And in so doing, they usher into God's good creation, which was purposed for life, now a new age, the age of death. Um, but God doesn't go anywhere and neither do humans. Instead, the Bible tells of a rescue plan, which God initiates. 
So while all of humanity has fallen into corruption, God sets in motion a plan to rescue and redeem the whole world through the vehicle of a chosen family. Um, remember, this is um, a God of partnership. You were, you were given this detail on the first page of the Bible. He could snap his fingers and fix everything, and often we feel frustrated that he doesn't do precisely that. Um, but the Bible was very clear from the beginning. Whoever this God is, and whatever mysteries remain about his identity, one thing is certain. He deeply desires to share this world with humans and run it alongside them, with them. And so the redemption plan found in the plot of the Bible naturally follows this logic. It involves people. Um, it will be through these individuals and this family of Abraham by the bond of covenant, if you're familiar with that word, that God will somehow fix the problem. So he promises Noah that he will never forsake humans despite their hell-bent, corrupted hearts. He's going to somehow transform the heart. Then he tells Abraham it's going to be through his family that the whole world will be blessed and all the families will be blessed through him. Abe's family grows into the nation of Israel um, to whom he gives the law and he entrusts the story of creation and his teachings. From the nation of Israel rises a king to whom he promises an eternal dynasty and an everlasting human throne. That's this story. That's what's been going on for the, like almost all of your Bible. Um, it's called the Old Testament, um, which all builds to the climactic moment where we're at last introduced to the character of Jesus. Now, Jesus shows up with like brilliant awareness. He's a student of that story, which has been unfolding for a couple thousand years, just a small couple thousand years. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each in their own artistic way, write biographies of Jesus to show how he is the human with the pure heart, the one anticipated in the Noah story. He's the seed of Abraham, here to bless the world. He's the chosen one of Israel, here to act as the priest, sacrifice, and temple in our midst. And he's the son of David, um, here to rule forever as the eternal, enfleshed, incarnate human king. All of which, you'll remember, was foreshadowed in the very beginning in creation when the author of Genesis told us that God wants to partner with humans to rule over his good and beautiful world. Okay, so we move into the New Testament, and there's a new reality in play. Unlike the timeline before, followers of Jesus are given the Holy Spirit of God who comes to dwell with humanity permanently, permanently so that all can partner with God like Jesus. So all are given sonship through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And while the fall, that little red box, is still real, um, while death and evil still permeate God's good world, um, if you just watch the news, you know this, um, the point is that the fabric of evil is tearing apart at its very core because um, uh, someone has risen from the dead and just destroyed it. And that effect is sort of rippling out. And so Jesus rose from the dead, the fabric of evil is tearing apart, and followers of Jesus are invited to like cultivate somehow resurrection life wherever they go by the power of the spirit that now indwells them until one day Jesus returns to establish once and for all the ultimate, final, glorious new reality in the age to come known as the new heavens and the new earth. Like literally a new, a new one, a new version where earth is washed somehow and cleansed of all her horror and humanity is at last fully and truly partnered with her loving God, all dwelling in full unity forevermore on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible. Okay. <laughs> Holy Toledo. Okay, so 
Um, now that we've got it set, now we can do the book of Philippians, with, and I can go to sleep. I can rest well tonight, knowing that we didn't just forget context. Okay, so the book of Philippians finds itself right here at home with every other church you read about in the New Testament. And, though it existed 2,000 years ago, somehow at home with us. Here, fellow followers of Jesus gathering together um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, eagerly living into this way of life that sort of shines with that resurrection hope, but right now in a world of pain and death. That's what's happening. That's why you came to church today, if you don't know that. So, um, in the case of Philippians, which we're going to read, this sense of like eager togetherness, robust friendship, and like familial bond, um, that's all of that forming underneath this banner of like the love of Christ. This is such a marker of the book of Philippians in a way that it's not as much in some of Paul's other letters. This is like a letter of friendship. Most scholars know this is, it's the friendship letter. Um, written by the Apostle Paul, who became a follower of Jesus, for those of you that don't know, after quitting his day job of being a violent um, and zealous antagonist of the Jesus movement. So upon his conversion, Paul went on to found and support these new communities of Jesus followers, which we'll call churches. And like any good friend, he just wished to keep up with them. And so he wrote letters to them. And we have them. You have them right here. Um, so I don't know if it's hit you recently, but you're reading like ancient emails when you pick up Philippians um, or Romans or whatever. Those weird books that you all are so used to saying, those are just weird titles for books. They're letters written to people living in those cities. And it especially feels like you're reading someone else's emails when you read Philippians um, and you, you pick up that this is like a real guy that loved these people and they clearly loved him. And they have this like existing relationship that you're just like, a fly on the wall, too. It's kind of, I don't know, it's pretty personal. So um, unlike, um, unlike Paul's other letters like Romans or a couple others, even Corinthians, which scholars call polemic um, or apologetic or of moral exhortation, Philippians just reads like you, you intercepted a love letter to a friend. It's not like a doctrinal teaching. And so the question is, what does it say about God in his relationship to the world? And why does Paul choose to hone in on such things in this way when he writes to his friends? The whole letter is predicated on this deep bond seen in Paul's mention of their partnership in the gospel, their mutual suffering, and then, of course, affection, like a really eager desire to hang out with them, see them. So we're going to keep going into context before we start reading. Um, when this letter was first unrolled, it was most likely read aloud. It's a common practice in the ancient world. And it was read aloud to real people living in a real place, people with jobs, in families and political and economic stress, real people that had children and day jobs and indigestion. And so here's a very brief sketch of this real context. This is the city of um, Philippi. It was located at the far eastern end of a large um, fertile plain in, the, in central Macedonia, if you know where that is. It was originally founded in um, 360 BC. Uh, but in Three, uh, uh, 356, it was taken over by Alexander the Great's dad, Philip the Great, <laughs> hence the name, F Mr. Great. Uh, following, following the Greeks came, of course, the Romans, um, who took over control in 168 and eventually set it up as a Roman colony for a lot of veterans of the war, which is why Paul talks about the Praetorian Guard um, of Caesar's household. He talks about this idea of citizenship in the book, 
This is the context. Um, so Acts 16, actually, you can read the story of the Philippian church. It's a great homework read. For those of you that are like, I'm bored, and I'd like to do some homework. Acts 16, you can read it this week. It tells the story of Paul coming to Philippi in the year 49, um, at which point we find Philippi to be like this urban political center of the eastern end of the plain. Um, and the heart of that community of Jesus' followers in Philippi was formed by God-fearing women who, because of the lack of like Jewish synagogue in the city, they just met by a river. Um, Sabbath, to have like Sabbath and to pray. What we're going to do in August, you just meet where you can, outside. Um, Lydia was one of these women, and she would become the host for the first house church in the city. And as one of the key leaders of this little Philippian church, Lydia goes on to provide patronage to Paul, which he mentions in the letter, come chapter four. Um, she's, they support him financially. So Paul is... Um, so, one, one thing we know about this letter is that Paul was clearly writing it in detainment. He describes four times as being like in chains. He's in prison. Um, and there are debates where exactly this was in the ancient world, most likely in Ephesus. The point, though, is that he very much relates to the Philippian church who is surrounded every day by Roman soldiers. Um, and uh, he connects with his friends on that level as he writes from a Roman prison cell. And so here's the basic story. I'm just going to give you the narrative that we are, again, if you're reading someone else's email, there's a lot of context of their own story. Here's what it is. The letter begins at the point where Epaphroditus' arrival, um, who brought a Philippian present for Paul, he also brings news of the Philippian church. So here comes my buddy, Epaphroditus. Paul receives Epaphroditus, the gifts and the news, and he's like, man, we got to write those cats a letter, those cats in Philippi. So he sketches for them a brief outline of his affairs. Um, but mostly in the letter, he's concerned about their affairs. And then he sends it back with Epaphroditus. And in the letter, he says, oh, by the way, I hope to send my buddy Timothy too. Um, and then you can send Timothy back to me. And hopefully we'll all be getting out by then and we can hang out. Um, again, real people, real place. These are real issues. So um, one thing we would do well to note is the ancient letter writing standards were different from our own. If any of you still write letters. Um, it was an ordeal to commit something to writing, like eight and a half by 11 printer paper just did not exist. Um, um, and if you wanted to write a lengthy letter, and Paul's letters were lengthy, even by ancient standards, then you wanted to recruit scribes. You wanted to work with a team. Um, and because you're trying to be strategic and economic, it's a very big deal to send something like this across the ancient world. The letter itself became this work of art because you would work hard to condense the larger themes into these concentrated, like, pithy building blocks of logic um, that were well thought out, and Paul's will especially show you this. Um, and if you want to do a good job, you foreshadow all that you're going to say there at the beginning. So it's like, it's really strategic because you can't, you don't just have gobs of money to spend on something like this. And so if you read a book like the book of Romans, you'll be like, man, was this a letter? I can't believe this was a letter. But it's like he was, he was um, being savvy. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read today's section, um, Philippians 1, verse 1 through 11. And then I want you to just pay attention to the larger themes at work because he packs it full of, it's foreshadowing everything he's going to talk about. You ready? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, 
all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Classic long sentences from the Apostle Paul. So note, note, just a couple things. Note the central focus of Christ in the gospel. Note the language of servanthood and partnership and fellowship. It's going to come up a lot. Note his chains, Paul's chains, and this motif of servanthood and being a slave for something. It's going to be a big theme. And then the future orientation of a life, of life, but living, living presently with joy, but like future oriented. He's going to tease that out. Um, so let's just jump right in. Um, you have this first little verse one. Um, Timothy's name here appears at the beginning of six of Paul's letters, and it's probable that um, Timothy is functioning as some sort of secretary for Paul. Um, And if you're a Paul nerd, you'll notice that Paul doesn't start this letter with his other favorite opener, where he like states his apostleship. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Have you heard that before? He starts his letters like that. Um, Not here. Here he says, hey, it's me and Tim, and we're slaves. Slaves of Christ Jesus. He uses the word douloi, servants or slaves. Um, Paul, Paul and Timothy, um, so, so uh, uh, how, what, what's, what's happening right here? Paul and Timothy are saying, we are, we've chosen to become slaves of a master. Why would you do that? Well, because this slavery, according to Paul, is going to be marked by this expression of love for their master in whom they find goodness and freedom, ironically. So he says something similar in 5.13. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Um, and this is in Galatians. But do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead love and serve one another. Um, so remember, this is a letter of friendship. Going back to Philippians, it's not primarily a letter of persuasion or doctrinal argumentation. He does not feel the need to appeal to his apostleship and rebuke those like sort of prickly theological matters. Um, compare it to the letter of Galatians, which is a prickly theological letter. Look how he begins Galatians. Um, Next slide. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Hey, it's me, Paul, and I have authority, like God's authority to write you this letter. (laughs) It's very different from Philippians. So um, go back to Philippians. Next slide. Paul is writing to all the saints um, in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Saints, it's curious. It's a curious thing. What happens to our imagination when we hear that word? Um, and we've just been, it's, our imaginations are populated with images like this. Next slide. Um, sort of like, um, so you have these images. If you hear the word saint. Liturgical um, high church spaces adorned with these images in their own right, you guys, I think in their own right provide like such rich beauty and history to our understanding of the wider capital C church. I'm so thankful for it. I offer no critique on these things. There, I think there's real beauty and mystery in these traditions that we could all learn from, honestly. But there is something that does happen that I think can be slightly challenging 
which is that when you picture things like this, when you hear about the saints in Philippi, whatever comes to your mind, um, you immediately separate it from A, its original context, whatever saint means, and then B, our own embodiment of that itself. And so saint means holy one, which is just like a really common term. It's really common terminology in the Bible to describe the covenant people of God. So we're right back to this. The covenant people of God, this is merely the maturation um, of the story which began in the Old Testament. So um, real quick, recall Moses, if you will. He's long since fled Egypt. And as a grown man, he's married, settled. He's invested into a life of shepherding when he comes across a burning shrub that is somehow consumed by flames without actually disintegrating. And Yahweh says to him from the bush, God says, don't come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. ground. You've been to church a few times, most of you. So the idea here, though, is that Moses is encountering something that's entirely unique and just like totally separate from anything else on planet Earth. So much so that this entirely unique or holy entity and Moses in his current state cannot abide together in that space. Um, you did not, you can't just, Moses, you can't just waltz in here upon this ground with your dirty feet, sandals and stuff. Like that's all ordinary stuff. Um, but it's all common. It's all day to day. There's something special though that's happening right here. And so you got to take your sandals off. God is encountering you. This place is in every way different. It's holy. Well, that very place, for those of you that have read Exodus, you'll remember, appears later in the story. It shows up again. That little bush aflame with fire grows into a massive lightning storm. And suddenly, the entire hillside is covered with God's holy presence. There's no place like it on planet Earth. God is on the mountain. And from that place, from the heart of the firestorm, God, God starts talking to his people. You're to become like this, Israel. You're to become a holy nation. And they freak out. As you would too. The story tells of Israel's struggle with the commission. As a nation, they cannot bear the task. And so a tribe is selected, a plan, plan B, a tribe is selected from the nation, the Levites who are going to carry on that holy commission. And they do an okay job. But Samuel and Kings tell the story of their corruption. It's pretty bad. And so the plot leads to a need, okay, from the nation to the tribe, we need just one. How about one king? We need one faithful, holy one, a saint, who will represent humanity before God and God before humanity, who will embody heaven, but do it here on earth, unique holiness incarnated into ordinary common flesh. That's what we need. And this character has a title. He is the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, which in Greek is Christ, Jesus the Messiah. That is the one selected to bear and embody God's reign on earth, even as it is in heaven. <laughs> you see what I did? We started going through Philippians. I'm like, let's just tell the story again. That's more fun. Okay, so it is, it is remarkable then. It is remarkable that Paul gathers all of this story up and just brings it to a head right here at the introduction when he says this line, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, to all the saints. Do you see what just happened? Just the entire story is packed right there into the introduction. How were they saints? Well, because look at this line. To all the saints in that Messiah. He, they're in the Holy One somehow. Whatever that means. 
So let's step back and take stock of a theme which is already emerging and which will be developed exquisitely in this letter, which you will see in the weeks to come, and which we'll see over and over again. In Paul's imagination, in other Pauline letters too, in Paul's imagination, he is holding two things in tension. And their tension forms this paradox which generates real power. On the one hand, you have divine holiness, cosmic freedom, unbelievable power, status, inheritance, glory, a mountain on fire, its peak lost in some celestial realm of thunder and lightning. It's the stuff to make you tremble. But on the other hand, you have all of that channeled into the expression found in the common human, operating in the day-to-day grit of life. Paul in chains as a slave with his buddy Timothy. Or Lydia, a woman in the ancient world keeping her household running, visiting the river to pray and to laugh and to do laundry and probably to wipe the snotty noses of all the children running around. And here's the thing. Paul's whole point is going to be that somehow in her humility and in the service of the Philippian church to love one another, the cosmic holiness of God is pouring himself out. It's being poured out and being put on display somehow, even as they are growing in the mind of Christ who poured himself out. And so Paul calls Lydia and the others there in Philippi saints, your holy ones. So we're being primed to contemplate this example of found in Jesus of someone who did not consider equality with God something to be like held on to, but instead chose to humble himself, take up the form of a slave. Um, We move on, um, and again, I'm not going to read all of this word for word, but look, Paul moves on to his Thanksgiving section where he says, I'm thankful for this and for for you guys. Um, We can't get too in the weeds, but just notice how affectionate and joyful this guy is, despite the fact that he's in prison. Um, Gordon Fee says this, joy lies at the heart of the Christian experience of the gospel. It is the fruit of the Spirit in any truly Christian life serving as primary evidence for the Spirit's presence. Precisely because this is so, joy transcends present circumstances. It is based altogether on the Spirit's, God's way of being present with His people under the new covenant. Here, then, is the paradigm of Pauline spirituality, thanksgiving and prayer filled with joy on behalf of all God's people in Philippi. So um, there's all this joy But then he starts talking about partnership, this idea of fellowship. Some of your translations might say fellowship in the gospel. The Greek word is koinonia, and while it's typically translated as fellowship, its primary reference is in connection to participating in something. Paul has been filled up with the Spirit um, to carry the good news of King Jesus, and in the Philippians, he's found this like real bond of friendship because in them are like these fellow people who want to do the same thing, want to work with him. And that fills him with a lot of joy. As Christians, living in 2023, we've just inherited a church culture, um, particularly in America, just fraught with bad habits of consumerism. Like we dip our toes into the community of faith, um, receive a little, and then um, return it at Kohl's in an Amazon package if we don't like it. Um, Oh, wait, that's not church. I'm talking about something else. We consume, and then we often critique what we consume, and then we rinse and repeat um, with like a real hesitancy to invest, and I get it, guilty is charged, like so guilty is charged. And I know what it's like to, f- to feel like a weird piece of machinery in a cog in a larger system called like the American church machine, 
where you just feel like your God's like good soldier that's just going to go until you die, and so you, or you burn out, so you, you just burn out quickly. And then if you like leave, it's like takes a lot of courage to get back into like the church because now you're like jaded, and it's just it's, it's a mess. It's just a disaster. And so many of you are coming from absolute mess, messy backgrounds, and you're here like, can we just like cool it? Um, and I, I'm with you. I really am with you. But Paul envisions a community of believers. Actually, Paul is experiencing a community of believers where his life is marked by such rich friendship founded on like co-laboring. There's something about the investment of both parties into the same mission that creates this opening for the spirit to like somehow start to grow fruit of joy. Somehow that is a dynamic. And so um, alternatively, um, some of the most joy-filled moments of my walk with the Lord have been the moments where I felt the mysterious, like often invisible and wordless experience of um, linking like the metaphorical arm in arm with those around me to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's like very mysterious moments. Deep joy and profound intimacy for me have been in like the quiet. I'm one of those people that just like, I love it. Just like, let me be quiet. Um, But there have been moments when I just, you can't wipe the smile off your face. When you experience the partnership of God's work with someone in the work of ministry, where like all theological arguments, ideological differences, personal preferences, they're all just put on hold for a second. And you find yourself standing shoulder to shoulder next to your brother and sister, both oriented towards and somehow invested in participating in the goodness of God's work in the world. (laughs) It's like trying to describe this thing. Um, Or to borrow Paul's language, you're focused on and and sowing into the honorable, the just, the pure, the lovely, the commendable, the excellent, the praiseworthy. It's filling up your life. And so somehow all of this unlocks like newfound treasure in Paul's soul. New horizons open up where we like invest ourselves into participation and partnership and then the co-labor of God's good work in the world and then joy comes to us and it comes to him and it allows us to reorient ourselves inside of our present circumstances. Somehow that is happening for Paul. Keep going. Verse 8, notice the robust picture at work for what the gospel works out in us. Like Paul yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. I don't know if I have... Aside from, like, my wife and kids, I don't know if I've ever had that, like, affection. That's insane to write that with a clean conscience. But that's being worked out in his spirit, apparently. This is a picture of real emotion here. And then look at this. Um, You have the following line, which is that my prayer that your love may abound. So here he uses the word love, which is different from affection. Notice this. In Paul's mind, like, love is connected to, first and foremost, the character of God. Um... So we ought to imagine God's forbearance, his kindness, his um, covenant loyalty, his steadfastness, his commitment, his action, um, all primarily and most perfectly manifested in Jesus' death on the cross, where we see like love for even enemies too. But somehow our allegiance to Jesus, our choice to become his slaves, liberates us, frees us, Totally. It sets us free to live lives of love and affection that are like where it's always on the rise, increasing, deepening, widening. Um, and Paul, so I want to talk about that for a second. Paul's prayer is that love increases and abounds. 
in 1 Thessalonians 3, he wishes for the same thing, for its increase and overflow. It's like Paul knows that even with friends, your good friends, because the Philippians are his good friends, and even in healthy communities, familiarity breeds, let's just say, apathy. <laughs> um, and I, man, I just confess, like Paul's vision just convicts me straight to my core. Um, and I have so much room to grow. I'm the kind of person that's like, everyone's just fine. Can everyone, everyone just go to bed at bedtime and we'll all be fine, right? It tells you I'm just a parent of toddlers. That's, like all, that's all I think about. Um, just take care of yourself and go to sleep. What's the big deal? You know? But Paul's like, no, 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 don't. Pray that you're, don't grow apathetic in your love. Like pray that it gets deeper and wider. You've, um, <laughs> so um, this takes energy. It takes commitment. It takes the willingness to show up and be a welcoming heart for people. Um, but even here, the nuance of Paul's prayer, I think, ought to be appreciated. He hopes that the Philippian church will increase in love, but that somehow the developing, somehow that develops in tandem with knowledge and discernment. Do you see this? Love may abound with knowledge and discernment. Well, why, why, why do we need knowledge and discernment in tandem with love? I thought like love is enough. It is enough. But like, what's that about? Um, because life is complicated, you guys. It's very complicated. And again, there's an implication here that I think Paul intends to make, and it shows he's highly aware of the human condition. First, he prays for an increase in love. Implication, we're prone to apathy. You got to pray for an increase. <laughs> Second, he prays that it would be partnered up with knowledge and discernment. Implication, it's possible to be fools in this world, to somehow grow prideful and ignorant in the way we love. Did you know that? It's possible to have this desire and think you've, you're doing the like loving person thing um, or just to, like you're being that good loving person and yet somehow you start to behave in a way towards others that forsakes like goodness and excellence and righteousness and it forsakes the mind of Christ. It, somehow that's possible, which should make us all tremble a little bit. His prayer that our love grows in partnership with discernment is aware of a world where we are capable of doing all sorts of things in the name of love, but in the end only ever end up serving ourselves. Besides this, there's a tendency where we pump so much affection and love into a situation somehow at the expense of discernment, that we become blind to that which is most essential and that which we can let go of for the sake of actual unity in the body, in the body of Christ. Fee says this, the reason for an overflow of knowledge and insight is so that they will be able to discern what is best. That is, so that the faculty for making proper assessments about what is absolutely essential regarding life in Christ will increase as well. For truly Christian life, some things matter. Others do not. Um, but, but what are those things? Now we'll, let's queue up all of the church divisions over the last hundred years. Yeah? How do we figure those out? That's the question. Um, I want to talk about that via an illustration. Um, so whether you're from the East Coast, Midwest, or West Coast, you've probably seen a field which looks like this. While you're driving, and when you're a kid, you like play that game where you're like trying to watch the rows like this. Um, in, the middle, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, 
mainstream America adopted the agricultural practice of monoculture farming. Um, it's called monoculture planting or monoculture farming because that's exactly what it's meant to do. In vast, enormous fields, like the one seen here, you grow one type of vegetation. And you don't just grow it. You mass produce it, baby. And in America, the three most common crops which we've grown in monoculture fields are corn, soybeans, and wheat. Um, now, there are two major benefits to this type of farming. It can feed a lot of people, and it can be a financial cash cow because you can satisfy not only domestic appetites, but you can also satisfy international appetites. A lot of incentive. But after years of doing this, what scientists have discovered is that crops grown in monoculture fields like this lack genetic diversity. And so they very quickly become prone, as most of you know, to disease and pests. So many diseases and pests. So now we have a problem. We're making a lot of money, and the people want more. But how do we keep this industry going in the midst of disease and pests? Chemical fertilizers and pesticides, right on. So this is a classic example of dealing with a major problem by way of a quick fix. So what happens? Well, turns out both genetic isolation of a monoculture crop and chemical fertilizers, and then brutal topsoil disturbance by way of tractors and heavy machinery is actually, turns out, incredibly hard on the land. And so now we have dry, degenerating soil, which needs to be pumped full of more chemicals and then watered with a whole bunch of heavy irrigation systems just to keep it going, just to make sure there's a pulse on that thing. Add on top of that a year of low rainfall, and we're talking like real disaster for so many people. And you get the point. We thought this was a good idea. Oh, we're feeding a lot of people. It's actually <laughs> feeding a lot of people. But man, let's not talk about how much of this is wrapped up also in making money or whatever. And in the end, um, what, was, what we thought was wise was actually really hard. And it got really, really hard. Environmental practices like this have grown into disaster. And it's taken us way too long to figure out that they're not sustainable. They're just not. It's a mess, and we've doubly messed up because not only do we keep perpetuating the problem by layering on unhelpful, quick solutions, we also refuse to acknowledge other ways, better ways, already present in this country, seen, for example, in um, ancient practices of some of our Native American cultures. There's an ancient planting tradition found in many Native American cultures called the Three Sisters, and I can't wait to tell you about it. Different iterations of the Three Sisters planting method exist all over, different Native American ancestral lands, but essentially, there is one big idea at work. There developed an ancient Native practice which paid attention to the natural horticultural needs of corn, beans, and squash, and slowly grew those vegetables with a focus on their unique design. So the practice goes like this. You plant the corn and the beans right next to each other, and then the stalk of corn, it provides a built-in pole for the bean to start climbing up. And so the beans are not out-competing the other sprawling plants because they have this built-in stalk. So the corn benefits the bean. But then, get this, the beans are natural um, nitrogen fixers, which means they naturally like fertilize the soil with the necessary nitrogen to grow and strengthen the corn stalk so that it can stay strong in the wind. And then the squash at the bottom, it produces these large shady leaves, which keeps the feet of all of these plants shaded and cool, and it allows for maximum water retention 
so nothing ever dries out. What? Here's the thing. That's amazing. That's amazing. But, like, it's so much, it's so slow. Like, that's so thorough. It's not an easy solution. You can't just, like, put that in a, I don't know, you can't just, like, make huge fields of this overnight. You have to actually, like, plant it. Um, it's, here's the point. It's not easily mass-produced. And this is the picture I have in mind here for what Paul is praying for. Paul wants the Philippians to grow in love in partnership with knowledge and discernment so that they can spot what is excellent, so that they have the mind of Christ to make the wisest decisions in complicated church cultures where there is no mass-producible fix-all solution that we can just give everyone overnight. Um, any more these days, you guys? <laughs> oh, it's just, this is absolutely crucial. Like, we can really feel it. As Christians in the modern world, we've just, like, we've done the thing so much where we, like, try to mass-produce what is working in that church or, like, what this, mo- this momentum or this movement's got going on for them. And we just, like, we want it right here now. And so we really want to, like, brand quick-fix solutions and just, like, implement things. And we just want to see some action. We just want some answers. Um, And there are just times when it's so great to see, like, that universal capital C church where we're sharing things and harmonizing. That's great. But then there's also this temptation, which, like, loses sight of the local community of Jesus followers, where at the end of the day, you're growing in love with an eye for discernment on this, like, small handful of ragtag people in this room, all of us. (laughs) Um, And we're supposed to be growing where we're paying attention to each other's, like, horticultural needs and um, our diverse genetic makeup. And we're partnering with God and the Spirit to do some deeper, like, more creative work, which sees to this community's flourishing. But it's not just like, oh, that church over there did it. Let's do that thing. It's like, it's more complicated than that. Um, it's, the stuff, it's this stuff, that, this work that I think Paul prays for the Philippian church in which we're all like benefiting from, it isn't mass producible, but at the end of the day, it's the stuff that bears the best fruit. It's fitting to think on this, I think, by the way of an agricultural metaphor, because Paul concludes with this. Look at this. I'm praying you grow in this way so that you'll be pure, blameless, totally filled up with all this good fruit of righteousness on the day of the king's arrival. So if you pay attention throughout the letter, he'll talk about the mind of Christ. And so there's this experiential knowing of God. There's knowing about God. There are all these, this is all parts of knowledge. But then there's this idea of having Christ's mind where we learn to think like how Jesus thought. And all of this is bubbling up to this climactic center of the letter where Paul breaks into poetry. And he says this. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to preach on it. Just read it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. Think like this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or like held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is at the center of the book. 
This is obviously a sermon for another time, but this is the guiding theme of the book. Our love is to be informed by this knowledge of God where we think like Christ, whose character is manifested in this story. What story? This story. Eternal glory and everlasting exaltation, divine holiness, somehow manifested truly when one clo- like when oneself is in, clothed in full humility in the dirt of a very specific context. The king becomes the lowliest servant, limited to real time and space and people. And only then does the revelation of the fullness of the exaltation even come. Um, so I want to invite you all to stand. I'm going to close off here, and I want to invite the ministry team up and the prayer team as well. And I'll just say one final word here. Um, through the humbling moment of his death on a cross, we see like the divine glory of the king. In Jesus, we see perfect partnership between humanity and God. And so Paul sees in us, little Christ followers, the continuation of this story. This is our king. This is our God. And we, so we pray for one another. We receive one another's prayers that we might learn to increase in love like this and knowledge like this where we have the mind of Christ. And so that's the journey we're on. Um, and I just want to, we're going to open up um, for mystery time now if you guys want to come up. just want to give you guys the space, the freedom to come before the Lord and um, our leaders will lead us there, but we'll enter into that time now.